the right and left hemispheres of the brain are interdependent, yet function differently from each other. The left houses more analytical and verbal processes, while the right allows for more visual and intuitive thinking. This idea was discovered by Roger Sperry in the 1960s. But over 200 years before, Swedenborg identified this difference based solely on his sensation of the inflow of spirits and angels into his mind. Here we are inside Off the Left Eye. Stick around for my exclusive interview with Curtis Childs, director of Off the Left Eye, where we discuss the strength of an embodied theology. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose, series editor for the New Century Edition translation of the theological works of Emanuel Swedenborg, discovers a fragment of a lost manuscript disguised as another work. Then we travel to 1748 to join Swedenborg as he begins his magnum opus, This Week in History. Okay, welcome, Curtis. I'm back. Great to be here. Yes, it's great to have you here for this episode. And this past week on the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel, we were exploring the spiritual link between the human brain and consciousness. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is a really, really fun show to do. I'm kind of amazed we've never done a show exploring the brain before and what Swedenborg has to say about it, because he really has a lot of interesting stuff to say. Which is as it, as it should be, right? Yes. Well, right. You wouldn't... I mean, that's that's part of what's so remarkable about Swedenborg's, uh, you know, I don't know, revelation or whatever you want to call it in terms of his spiritual awakening and this interaction that he has with spirits is that it wasn't divorced from his experience of his own body. It was deeply embedded in the experience he had of his body which is like maybe not what you would expect so but if you're missing fun. it if you're missing it it the answer is unsatisfying if you think about yes anything that's saying okay we're unlocking the secrets of life and it's this thing over here in this box that you never thought of that <laughs> there's no way why are we sitting here in these mega complex structures why is the experience of human tied to this very, very particular organism, you know, the human body that we're in. You can't say you're going to tell us about God and the mysteries of life and it doesn't tie in. It's like if you were making a yes. movie, why did, we, why did we spend all that time making the set that we never shot on, you know? Exactly. It's so, it's so amazing. And I really, uh, yeah, we, we are the box. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> it, it, it's, and it's really fun to, explore what he has to say it does have that sense of there's just this seemingly infinite depth that you could explore in terms of the way that uh these spiritual things are kind of mapped and encoded in our own bodies and we really couldn't fit all of what he says into the show so i wanted to touch on just a couple of things that uh, are just fascinating and are just a little extra extra tidbits on this subject so in Divine Love and Wisdom, number 362, Swedenborg makes this statement. He says, volition and discernment, or volition can sometimes be understood as like your will. Volition and discernment, the vessels of love and wisdom, are in the whole brain and every part of it, and therefore in the whole body and every part of it. And that's this pithy one-liner of a statement that I love because it has such amazing implications like it's amazing to think of these vessels of love and wisdom our volition and discernment being 
everywhere in our whole brain and in every part. Yes. And that that's not just, oh, I can go walk somewhere and, and take a spoonful of spirituality out of a well somewhere. This is, it's in me and it's not just in a part of me, it's integrated holistically into every little bit of who I am. And, and it gives this sort of newfound reverence for the brain, even though it's it's great, it's awesome, and it's a supercomputer to think it's yeah. also the access point for the divine. And, and it's very particular shape is an access point for these this spiritual life. Yeah. And there's that it it gives such promise of this potential of like, wow, I've got these vessels of love and wisdom just sitting there that they're designed to receive that kind of love and and wisdom and understanding that it's like, you know, I can feel so like, I don't know, like you're having to just work at it or build build a sense of understanding from scratch or something. But to realize that, you know, yeah, we our very brains are designed to receive this stuff is is very cool. Yeah. And you got to get beaten up by life a little bit along the way to finally be the point where you're like, oh, I just love it if I could just have the pristine <laughs> thing come to me. I think it's, yes. it's, it's sort of like you you, you develop uh, an appreciation for it like people have who love nature in a way that they, they just want to yeah. observe it. They want it to be what it is, but they're not thinking, well, if I could design an ecosystem, I would do the best <laughs> ecosystem. It's right. more just like a <laughs> profound reverence and joy for for enabling the thing to exist, you know, drinking in its existence. Oh, I like that. And that, that'll definitely change how I think about my thoughts, you know, <laughs> over the next like week, <laughs> that, that awe that you can have when you're in nature or something. So, um, so additionally, Swedenborg learned through his reflection on this like ongoing interaction that he was having with spirits and angels, he made this remarkable insight about the will and intellect and its relationship to the brain. So he writes this, and this is Secrets of Heaven 641. These two sides, the intellect and will, which are these like core parts of who we are. He, he talks about those two things a lot, people mm -hmm. will find, um, are as clearly distinguished in us as they could possibly be. I was able to learn this unmistakably from the fact that intellectual information coming from spirits and angels enters the left side of the head or brain, but impulses of the will enter the right side. And he's saying this writing in 1748, okay? And now through modern brain research, we have much more of this appreciation for the differences between the left side and right sides of the brain. And it's amazing that he felt that through these interactions with spirits and angels that he had. Yes. I don't think this is, it's not the game we're playing. It's not very spiritual, but if there's something you had to point to, to say like, dude, this proves it's true. What he's talking yeah. about. <laughs> it would be this anticipation of modern brain science. And he wasn't what he was going for. There's, he never submitted this to some like brain research group, but he's not, he's not set up to gain from it. He's just recording what he experienced. And it happens to, Line up with what we now know. And it, again, not to harp, keep harping on this, like, you can't have spirituality in a box thing. But if you just say, yeah. you know, renounce the world or believe in Jesus, and that's the secret to life, then all this work we did de developing an understanding of the complex relationship yeah. between the right and left brains and all that is was, was nothing. It was meaningless. But here it shows it's just so holistic, the integration. I love it. 
That's right. People, you know, religion has one megalithic thing was like totally freaked out with the whole dawn of enlightenment and, you know, like the scientific age and everything of like, oh no, we've lost our interest in God because we're focusing so so much on research and science and, you know, study of the world. And, um, and that it's, you know, with what Swedenborg wrote, it's like, that was not a detour at all. That's actually this essential uh, balancing foundation that we needed to even further expand our sense of enlightenment about spiritual things. So like those two sides totally work together so well, which is really cool to think about. And without it, the story of human progress doesn't make any sense. If if the whole point of life is for us to connect with God and with heaven, make a heaven from the human race, which you, you could get a lot of religions saying, yeah, that's the point. What is this subplot of the advance of human knowledge and technology? It is absolutely yeah. driving the way that life is. Right now, we're in this global pandemic. And so everyone's looking for, okay, how are we going to develop antibody treatments and vaccines that are going to get us out of this thing? The, the, we're recording this podcast on this brand new, there's this explosion of technology that's happening. What's going on with that if it's completely frivolous? But if Swedenborg is saying, look, you know, the way to understand the divine design, you got to understand the lowest level, which is the physical level, and that becomes a yeah. container. Then it's like, oh, I get it. This, even all this technology, this is, and this is cool. Me just looking at this like laptop and and recording devices in front of me. This is part of some elaborate plan by God to reconnect us. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. So great. So that, that gives people a little bit more of a taste of some of the amazing things Swedenborg says about uh, the brain. You can, you know, search for it yourself and, uh, explore some really interesting stuff that he has because we couldn't fit it all into the show or into this show, but it continues to uh, whet your appetite for that. And um, and then so this next week is actually going to be a break week on the Off the Left Eye channel, but then coming up on November 30th, you can look forward to our show, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? So that will be a great topic to explore. And so thanks, Curtis, for chatting about this with me. It's so fun. And I look forward to catching up with you at the end of the show to see where Swedenborg was this week in history. All right. All right. Time for the NCE Spotlight. Hey, Jonathan. Hey there. Thanks for inviting me. Yes. Well, it's always great to have you. And how could we not? We've been left on such a cliffhanger with what are the other mysteries of of AE, of Apocalypse Explained, this unpublished manuscript of Swedenborg's that has a lot to explore. It does. And I want to talk this time about a discovery that we made in the course of working on that introduction to the Shorter Works of 1763. Nice. Um uh, this takes a little setting up, uh, some things that your listeners have heard before. But in the published work called The Lord, or the traditional title, Doctrine of the Lord, mm-hmm. there's a preface where Swedenborg says that he's going to publish nine books. We talked about this in yes. a prior setting because four of them are called teachings and four of them are called angelic wisdom. That's right. And of the angelic wisdom works that he mentions that he's just about to publish. Yeah. Two of them don't get published. 
We talked about the mystery of one that was called Angelic Wisdom Concerning Life that didn't get published. But there was another one called with the lengthy title of Angelic Wisdom Concerning Divine Omnipotence, Omnipresence, Omniscience, Infinity, and Eternity. Oh, well. (laughs) Quite a mouthful. Easy for you to think. And um, so even when I was working on the bibliography for the New Century Edition essay volume about Swedenborg's works, we listed this as a work that was never written, as far as I knew and as far as other bibliographers yes. knew, there was not a trace of it anywhere. And I mentioned in a previous episode about how as you go through the later chapters in Apocalypse Explained, where Swedenborg is explaining the book of Revelation, uh, he starts to insert more and more material in between the numbers that expound what's going on in Scripture, and they get larger and larger, and the exegesis gets smaller and smaller. And at some point, very late in the manuscript, uh, the, the, the whole manuscript ends abruptly in 1229 in the fair copy and 1232 in the rough draft. Mm-hmm. Paragraph numbers, Section right? numbers, yeah, that's yeah. right. And we're all the way back at 1216, so we're coming up very soon. We're, we're at the very end of the work. Imagine my surprise when I read this in section 1216, subsection 2. He says, Infinity and eternity, also providence and omnipotence, as belonging to the Lord, have been treated of. Now the omnipresence and omniscience that belong to him shall be treated of. Huh. Part of what's fun about that is that they have not been treated of. <laughs> this is the first he mentioned them in this manuscript. Oh. It's so jarring that all of a sudden in the middle of the woods here, you come across this thing that says, well, I already talked about that. Well, no, you didn't. It's crazy making. You go back and you look for those terms. He didn't talk about that. Yes. And... He's, and what's really interesting, so it just seems like that's talking about this, is this a fragment of that otherwise lost work? Like he actually did write it or write a draft of it at the end of that same section in 1216 subsection four, he says, it is important that this treatise, Latin opus, interestingly here, this okay. work on the divine attributes should be continued as it was begun. Oh, my Again, goodness. Again, crazy making. It wasn't begun. Not, not that we could see from this. And yes. then he says, here then the divine omnipresence and the divine omniscience, easy for me to say, shall be considered. <laughs> and uh, then he goes on. And in the uh, the ends of the next numbers, if you can picture them between 1216 and 1229. Yeah have this continual, very coherent narrative in these continuation sections on the subject of uh, omniscience and omnipresence. Wow. And another really interesting thing, if this is the angelic wisdom, if this is a portion of it, first of all, the first question is, where did the first half or the first two thirds of the work go? He's already treated of infinity and eternity. He threw in providence. (laughs) <laughs> and he dealt with, uh, you know, divine omnipotence. Uh, where did it go? 
And it's very helpful because I argued in a previous podcast that I thought that he was writing these angelic wisdom works for not for the clergy. Yes. You know, it was more for people who'd gotten a little allergic to Christianity and to the Bible and all that and were reasoning about these things in, in uh, different ways. And sure enough, in this 1216 subsection 2, he writes, earthly-minded people, especially in the Christian world, have become very numerous, and such see nothing of God. And unless they see, they don't believe. Mm. Or if they profess to believe, it's either done from conventionality or from blind knowledge or from hypocrisy. And yet they have the ability to see. In order, therefore, that the things relating to be God may be seen, it is permitted to treat of them from light and from consequent rational sight. Wow. In other words, not the Bible. You know, we're going to reason about these things. We're not going to take some revealed religion as our basis. So it's, in a way, a very clear statement of the philosophy of these angelic wisdom works if you accept the premise that this is a fragment of the work that he never published. So it's not true to say it was never written. I think it was at least drafted. And I don't believe he, he just doesn't seem like the type to me to suddenly say, I've already treated of these when he hadn't. Oh, yeah. I think he did treat of them. They were just in a different pile of paper. He had a number of piles of paper on his desk, as far as I can tell. When he yes. was writing Apocalypse Explained, he had uh, his Bible indexes. He also had an index of the manuscript that he was writing. He had lists of what the different chapters meant, uh, and he had these continuation sections. And so he just, I don't know, did he pick up a pile of paper, uh, but it was, you know, partway through or something? I, I don't know how this, how this happened, but my sense is that he wrote the first half or two-thirds of it. We just don't know where it is. But why he would suddenly insert that is so mysterious. But it felt, uh, to a nerd like me, so exciting to feel that you'd come across this supposedly lost work and you get really a pretty decent impression of the approach of the work. That's amazing. You know, you that know, is really amazing. Sections. Yes, that even just that little bit, he's saying like, well, here's why I'm writing this, this amazing thing that he is consciously saying i'm going to write you know to make this argument or or to show to teach about the nature of god from that light and rational sight and everything that's like that is so remarkable and so this thing is disguised this lost work is actually disguised in a draft of ae what we've always been calling apocalypse explained but as you showed like explained to us last time that um, he's using it almost as just like a work sheet, you know, like his workplace to right. be able to put all these different sections together to be doing work on, on different parts in between the numbers, like you're, like you said. So if we phrase that as a, as another one of these mysteries, yeah. uh, there are several mysteries there, I guess, but, but is that, part of that lost work. It just seems to me very compelling that it is. How often would he just randomly happen to hit all five of those 
nouns, you know, omnipotence, <laughs> omnipresence, <laughs> omniscience, infinity, and eternity. And, and he throws providence too. in yeah. as well. And then later on, someone asked him, his, his uh, one of the earlier, he's called a follower. Uh, he was very enamored with what Swedenborg was writing, Dr. Gabriel Beyer of Gothenburg. Mm-hmm. He wrote to Swedenborg and asked, why didn't you ever do that work on omnipotence? divine attributes. And Swedenborg says, oh, it, he doesn't say, oh, I drafted it and I put some of it in a manuscript. He, he just says, um, it would have been too lofty. I, I included thoughts along those lines in divine love and wisdom and divine providence and even in um, Apocalypse Revealed or Revelation Unveiled, the, his oh. book about the um, book of Revelation that came out later. And he even gives some sort of section references to Dr. Beyer to say, look here, you'll you'll see that material. But uh, I think we have a little more than that. And so why, what happened the first half or two thirds of it? What is it doing in there? It comes right at the end, you know. Right, and, like you're uh, saying, there's only a the, handful of numbers. It's not like it's a long chunk. No, and, and is, the, is the whole thing breaking down? Was this a draft? Was he going to revisit it? It's just so. This was uh, arguably in 1759, and yet in 1763, he's still absolutely thinking he's going to publish this book, and he tells everybody in his oh, published yeah. preface that he's going to do it. Yeah, it's coming it's... right up. So the pull the plug moment seems to have been. Now you can go back and write in a manuscript in, in any old time, but. But it seems that this was right in the flow because the this material is constantly interrupted, if you will, by the explanation of the Revelation chapter nineteen. You know, here in fact, didn't we have a show recently about the seven thunders? That's what he's talking about when this barges in. It's ah. just really interesting. But oh, that's so interesting! Yeah, that's amazing. And it makes me think like Swedenborg is calculating. He's very thoughtful about what's going to work, what's not going to work for, you know, and he's like willing to change his game and all, all this kind of stuff to be getting getting people interested and and wanting to write and um, or I mean, wanting to think about these ideas and read, read it and get get a conversation going, you know, and. So you wonder if his if the reception of the 1763s affected his plans, you know, because then he's like, all right, I'm going to do divine providence and divine love and wisdom, but not this O-O-O-I-E, because I don't know the order of those O's. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that's good. I hadn't heard the abbreviation yeah. before. <laughs> Ooh-y. Yeah, and the fact that providence made the list as well makes you wonder if he just thought... Let's keep it simple. Let's just stick to providence. Yeah. That I can persuade people of, I think. This, and, this, it yeah. might be a bit of a reach for these other things. Total speculation, too, is like, I know he sometime had, you know, angels or spirits having some opinions about the work he was doing. And you wonder if it, it got even a little too heady for, for <laughs> you know, like Swedenborg right. could get heady. and. And maybe, you know, maybe there's some influence of like, well, Providence, you can really tie that down to sort of the lived experience and, you know, people's, I don't know, who knows? I'm just throwing ideas around, but well, we there's don't more know. Than one, there's more than one passage where um, 
you do seem to have what we might now call focus groups about how this is going to be <laughs> yeah. received, you know, in the other world. You you do have that kind of thing. He was really interested in how it would be received. So maybe it didn't do well in focus groups. That's right. Right. Or like it was a little too far and like, well, people are going to be fascinated with it, but I don't know, maybe they're not going to be able to yeah, bring it down into life. Who knows? So... Cool. Well, thanks, Jonathan. This is this is quite a fun mystery to explore with you this week. Great fun. And shall we go explore now together and join Curtis to see where Swedenborg was this week in history? Oh, I can't wait to see where he was. All right, Curtis and Jonathan. Welcome. Hey, hey. <laughs> hey there. Great, I, you're both there. You're both on the here. line. Yeah. I, it, we I made just, it. Yeah, I didn't want to talk over Jonathan, so I didn't say anything. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, go ahead. It will, you guys could just like hash it out. Um, <laughs> so this week, we are going back to see what, what Swedenborg was up to this week in history. And we're going to jump back to the year 1748. And... Uh, this, we've touched on this year once before in this podcast, and I looked it up just to check. It's episode 10. And, uh, that what we touched on there was that he had chosen England over Holland to publish Secrets of Heaven. And then it was like a few weeks later from that. So then this week in history, Swedenborg is beginning to write Secrets of Heaven. And so it's the very beginning of this new, uh, you know, bibliography, you know, works that he is putting out. And, and we have talked about before this giant work that came before Secrets of Heaven, which was almost like a prototype. It was called The Word Explained, where he, um, it was a study of the Bible, but it's where he kind of gets more and more uh, derailed, so to speak, or you'd think it was derailing or something because he's studying the word and then writing down these vivid spiritual experiences that he's having um, so much so that the book just kind of becomes more and more these, these vivid spiritual experiences. Um, and so that kind of sets the stage because now he's writing secrets of heaven and there's a couple of aspects to this work that I think would be interesting to touch on. And one is that um, now he kind of marries the two, this study of the Bible. He goes back to the beginning again. He starts over, scraps all the work that he did with Word Explained, starts fresh from the get-go of the Bible. And he's writing about this internal sense in the Bible, but then uh, coupling it with stories from his spiritual experiences. Like he's cataloged them all now. And now he's sort of carefully segmenting his work with these uh, spiritual experiences, which I think is a pretty sort of wild way to think of writing a book, but they are actually these two core parts of Swedenborg's whole thing, which is this, the Bible has an inner meaning and the spiritual world is this real thing that we have to talk about too. Right, and this really, you know, I know I promised in a section or two ago that I wasn't going to keep harping on this, but I'm going to keep harping on it. Integrated yeah. nature of life that yeah, you'd think these things don't talk to each other, Bible spiritual experiences, but the, the two are so intertwined that you got to talk. You can't even go a whole book 
without mentioning <laughs> the other. It's just elegant, man. You'd think whoever was a scriptwriter for all of this, wow, yeah, that's a good way to tie these seemingly uh, disparate elements of life into this seamless package. And I can't say whether it's absolutely unique on the planet or not, but I can well imagine people, I still think it was kind of unusual at that time, but but people would write a book of spiritual experiences. And certainly there was lots of talk about what does the Bible mean mm -hmm. and expounding it and so on. But who else put those two together? It's very unusual and kind of a interesting attention-getting approach. And you see this um, right in the title of the book. Yes, right. You know, just the title, which would sometimes be they'd print extra copies of the title page because the titles were long back then and just use them as posters that you put up around town. And that makes it very clear. I'm talking about Genesis and spiritual experiences in the afterlife. And then you flip open the book and before you get to section number one, he has a little kind of table of contents and he goes through there. Here's where I talk about the meaning of scripture and how scripture works in here and gives a list of passages. Here's where I talk about my spiritual experiences in here. Hmm. And he gives an even longer list of where the sections are and what the topics are about his spiritual experiences. So right from the beginning, look at these two things, you know. Yeah. And he's not just saying, well, these two things are worth your time and pay attention to them. But he, he acknowledges within the first few numbers of how they are, uh, you can't have one without the other. So he said, he's making this amazing claim, you know, that, uh, you know, not just that, well, there's meaning in the Bible. Obviously people have been harvesting meaning from the Bible forever, but he's saying that it contains these secrets of heaven that are, um, you know, every single aspect of it has to do with the Lord, heaven, church, faith, tenets of faith. Uh, but this inner message, he says, without the Lord's aid, uh, this is from number five, not a soul can possibly see that this is the case. As a result, it is proper to reveal in these preliminaries that the Lord and his divine mercy has granted me the opportunity for several years now, without a break or interruption, to keep company with spirits and angels, to hear them talking and to speak with them in turn. Consequently, I've been able to see and hear the most amazing things in the other life, which have never before come into people's awareness or thought. Um, and so that he's saying, you know, he couldn't have gotten what he got out of the Bible if it weren't for these spiritual experiences he was having at the same time. It's like if right. you were trying to explain, let's say, American political attitudes without <laughs> any study or mention of media. Mm -hmm. You just couldn't do it because it so affects everything. You just can't possibly study the, the landscape of political attitudes without studying the effect of media and things. This is yeah. the this is but more so the impact that the spiritual world and the surrounding spiritual communities has on our consciousness. So to say, hey, we're gonna create this this set of teachings where you can dive into your consciousness and get things, you know, prepare the way for God to clean things up and get you into divine order. To be able to try to have that conversation without talking about the spirits in the spiritual world and that side of life, you just can't do it. You just can't do it. So Swedenborg is saying, I had to have this. I had to be aware of this for me able me to be able to go after these sacred core things like the, the Bible and its inner sense. 
And something implied in what you both are saying is that not only were his spiritual experiences informing his understanding of the deeper layers of Scripture, but Scripture was helping him understand his spiritual experience because yes. it was baffling at first. He, he couldn't tell what was going on. And, and putting those two together was like the left and the right eye. It just came into focus. Hmm. Or the left and the right sides of the brain, like we were just talking about. Um, Call back. <laughs> so, no, yeah, but seriously, I do think that's amazing because it's, it's cool to get a sense of his process, like we have been in these um, segments of the podcast, that these spiritual experiences were happening to him. And then what a welcome, you know, uh, like framework that he gets to realize this whole thing is coded in the Bible and is going to help me figure out what is going on, you know, and how to navigate this whole thing. So that like, I hadn't thought about it that way before, but that's very cool. Another amazing thing. So he's, he's launching on writing this thing. And like we said, this is sort of his fourth time or so through, uh, you know, starting into writing about the inner meaning in Genesis and and onward in the Bible. Um, but he's like hitting his stride and, uh, and that's something we've mentioned, but to just know that it's this week in history, he's starting to write our uh, Secrets of Heaven and it takes him about eight months or something, seven months to write the whole thing. He finishes it in June, 1749. And this thing is something like 640 quarto pages, these like large um, printing pages that they would use to create the volumes of, of the book. Um, and so he's just churning this stuff out. Like he, and he's just on a roll where it, uh, the math, when you do the math, it comes down to being something like he's writing 90 manuscript pages a week. And that works out to being like, if he's working every day, he's writing 12 pages of these, of manuscript a day. It's incredible. And a fun little fact that a scholar named Alfred Acton pointed out a few years ago is that if you look at the dates in his spiritual experiences manuscript, which was being written at the same time, mm -hmm. all of a sudden the amount that's being written in that book drops like a stone. The first four weeks in November in 1748, he wrote an average of 26 uh, pages, and I'm just taking pages now as um, pages in the Latin edition, just to have sort of a consistent sure. yep. size things to compare. But but in the Latin edition that came out of Spiritual Experiences, there's 26 pages in the Latin edition per week uh, of, of material going in there. And then that drops uh, to eight pages in the entire month of December, you know. Oh, wow. So, so in other words, there's 100 in November, over 100 pages. And it drops off to eight. And in December, I think it goes to three in February. You know, in other words, it's just like this energy is going into spiritual experiences. And then as of this moment in 1748, okay, no, the fire hose is going over here <laughs> yes. now. And it's all going into Secrets of Heaven. Well, and talk about fire hose. Because yeah. if you're saying not just drafting, but completing, because he moves on the next day and writes 12 new, 12 pages a day. 
Yeah. You think about a, a reasonable 12 hour workday to write, <laughs> to complete a page, not copy something over. If you guys have ever tried to write something, which I know you have. Yeah. To finish a page every hour and not look back. That's insanity. And a publishable you, page. That's crazy. Publishable. And, and enough so that here we are. We, we have no relation to him. We have nothing. We owe him nothing. And yet we're just like uh, joy, joyfully focusing our whole hour here talking about these books. And we've <laughs> devoted our lives to it because the content is so strong. He's just churning it out that fast. Man, it's like the Beatles. Right. Yes. Or I think of, uh, you know, the story of Handel's Messiah that he wrote that in this like super short amount of time, uh, you know, just compose this whole piece of music. So it's just amazing that, you know, Swedenborg is just like, it's all coming to him and it's all fitting together. And he's just composing, you know, this first volume of Secrets of Heaven in just, you know, these eight months or whatever it is. Mm. The sense of urgency that he must have felt once he kind of really got his game jersey on and was ready to go, you know, uh, like, oh, I'm not getting any younger. We've got to hit this. We got to hit this hard. Let's go right now. Yeah. And it's interesting to, too, to think that, that that's something that people have noticed. Like he, speaking of the, you know, fire hose or something is that, um, he's kind of like feeling his way out, you know, through the previous couple of years doing the word explained and everything. And like, when he sits down to write secrets of heaven, he knows what he's doing and he knows what he's talking about. Like he's had this huge overhaul to his whole understanding about religion through what he's been able to witness, uh, you know, in the, in the spiritual world. And, um, oh, cause he, I was, yeah, this amazing line. He says in particular, this is also those first few numbers in secrets of heaven. In particular, I have learned what is taught in the faith acknowledged by the whole of heaven. You know, he's got this like, Whoa, heaven, like this faith that's in heaven, uh, he's had that taught to him through these last couple of years. And now he's ready to just like, get it out there, you know, get the message out. So it's very cool. And it's bedrock. It really doesn't shift after that. I mean, it really is true that that understanding of scripture and who God is, that there are some other things that evolve in interesting ways, but that bedrock doesn't move an inch. Cool to think of it as it's really, he's reporting on a living culture. This is, this is how things are done in heaven. And he even says that once or twice, that this is how, this is how it's done in heaven. That it's not, you think of theology as some kind of artificial prescriptive stuff that exists on paper primarily. But mm -hmm. if he's saying, look, there's this whole place that's actually got a population bigger than the world probably. Mm -hmm. And this, it's a, it's got cities and towns and people and it's life, you know, just as vibrant and more so than when you got here. And this is just how it goes there. And now I'm going to come in and report that it's alive. You know, it's core. It's something, it's not on paper. It's being lived. Yes. Oh, very cool. Well, boy, am I glad he got to it and, <laughs> and had that, right. had that drive and perseverance to keep going and, and keep going and going as we know. But uh, this was very fun to get to explore this particular week with you, you both this week. So thanks so much, Curtis and Jonathan. Thanks for having us. Always fun. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Subscribe to Inside Off the Left Eye to be notified every time a new episode comes out. And you can explore all our content and resources at our website, offthelefteye.com. 
To become part of the core group of people who sustain what we do here at Off the Left Eye, go to otle.causevox.com to support our work with a donation. But you know, having you there listening is a real form of support in and of itself. So I mean it when I say thank you for listening. I'm Chelsea Odner, and we'll be here with you next time inside Off the Left Eye.